The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, as one of our colleagues said earlier today, this week has been a month. I think that's the general consensus in this room around this table, right, guys? Joining us from the Statehouse News Service are Katie Lannon, Chris Lasinski, and Matt Murphy. Hi, folks. Hey, Sam. We are all very tired. <laughs> Including Colin, who had that nice quote about this week being a month, and uh, I think we, we lost him somewhere along the way today. <laughs> um, we've got We lost him in coronavirus land. <laughs> He was at that press conference earlier. He was. Yeah. For those listening, Colin is upstairs right now working on our latest coronavirus story, so check your inboxes later today. Yeah, please do. Um, uh, today for you on the takeout, we do have a good uh, heaping portion of transportation, a side order of Super Tuesday, and a bottle of coronavirus. <laughs> Washing it down with the virus. I like it. Uh, And we do have a one-two punch of transportation-oriented sessions to talk about, right, from the House this week. I know earlier this morning... um, I hope it's a spiked punch. A spiked punch? Yeah. Hmm. I know earlier this morning, uh, Colin was outside and saw some reps walking around with suitcases. And you'd imagine some of the folks from Western Mass probably uh, spent the night in Boston um, because it was a long day Wednesday and a long day Thursday for members of the House. Uh, They started off with the taxing on Wednesday, then the spending on Thursday. Uh, Chris, uh, you covered a lot of that this week. A lot of it. I did. You stayed late on Wednesday. You didn't stay over in Boston, but you, you stayed late at the State House on Wednesday. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about what that session was like. Uh, this was, well, tell us also about how this contrasts to the last gas tax increase back in 2013. Yeah, so we saw one of the basically four major prongs of this taxing bill was a five cent increase to the 24 cents per gallon gas tax last increased in 2013. That time they increased it three cents and also uh, at the point indexed it to inflation. So theoretically, the gas tax would have kept increasing since then every year based on how much inflation we saw. But uh, as we all around this table know, that did not last very long. Voters were unhappy with that and repealed the indexing just a year later. Uh, And that was really something that kind of hung over this process. When House leaders rolled out the, uh, the proposal a week ago, they even said that this didn't have indexing because the voters sent a, a very clear message last time that they don't want steady increases to the gas tax based on, uh, based on the economic climate. Yeah, there was actually one amendment, I think, from Rep Vitolo that wouldn't have indexed it, but would have had gradual extra increases over the years to come. Uh, that that amendment didn't go anywhere, right? Yep. That amendment, like most of the substantive ones, was withdrawn quietly at some point during the day with no debate on it. The final bill that ended up passing had a couple of interesting changes, but all of the, uh, 
the proposals that really would have reshaped how this affected the transportation system and the kind of revenue it would have brought in uh, met with untimely and unsuccessful fates. Yeah, what were some of those interesting changes? I know there was one about membership on the FMCB, the the MBTA's governing board. Right, the Fiscal End Management Control Board. And management? Yeah, the end is between the first two words. All right, there's always uh, a little confusion over that. I uh, just wish they'd go along with uh, the governor's proposal there just to just to rename it. I don't, you know, I'm not so much into what's the right way to construct the board, but just to call it what is you just want to call it the MBTA board. Like, yeah, this is that this makes is a, a little more sense. Suggestion <laughs> that uh, that we hope that the leaders listening will follow our advice here and just just give it a normal name, folks. Uh, anyway, so, so what would this uh, what would this amendment do? <laughs> this adds two seats to the board. So kind of to back up a little bit, uh, the board is set to expire in July. This was convened five years ago. They've used the one extension for it. It will run out and stop overseeing the MBTA on July 1st. So we've known for some time that the uh, the state house is going to have to do something about it. Governor Baker, in his budget, proposed replacing it with a seven-member successor board that has a seat for the Secretary of Transportation. The House's original bill just would have extended the same exact board as ex- exists today for another three to five years. But through this amendment, it adds another two seats. So it will be a seven-member board similar to the governor's proposal, except those two seats will be for uh, local uh, officials, one from the city of Boston, appointed by Boston's mayor. And, and that's a change from, that Marty Walsh had been asking for. Yep, that's something that he's been pushing for for more than a year. And the other for another municipality somewhere in the 51 community MBTA broader area. Who would pick who that is? The governor would pick that one as oh, well. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, what were some of the other changes? We've got, um, and we're talking about changes on the floor because last week's episode, we talked a lot about what's in the bill itself in terms of those different prongs, fun- funding right. mechanisms. Um, there was a Rep. Peich amendment that was changed. The original version was kind of drastic compared to what was eventually adopted. Yeah, this is something that I got mixed up on Wednesday night, uh, admittedly. The original amendment basically would have implemented congestion pricing. This is a, a term we hear a lot where roadway tolls vary based on different times of day, trying to get people to drive at off-peak times and charge them more if they want to contribute to already bad traffic. Uh, the amendment that ended up passing was an amendment as changed that only calls for the Department of Transportation to implement the recommendations of a commission that's studying congestion pricing and adding tolls onto roadways all across the state. So far, far less significant than the original proposal here, but a little bit stronger and firmer than the underlying bill was. Yeah. And uh, there's another amendment either withdrawn or defeated, not sure, um, from Rep. Jones that would have sunsetted these increases after uh, if and when the so-called millionaire surtax is um, becomes law, right? Right. In uh, 2022, that could go to the ballot. That was really one of the only moments we saw in the House on Wednesday of actual debate on the floor mm, good over point. A, a proposal to change this bill. It was ultimately unsuccessful. And after that, we had several hours where they would do nothing for 58 minutes and basically be sitting in recess during backroom negotiations come out, shoot down an amendment or approve an amendment on a voice vote, and immediately go back into a a quiet lull. So if you were watching, you really couldn't see much happening. It was all going on behind the scenes. Yeah, where was the actual legislating going on? In the the members' lounge, like they do during budget sessions, or? Could be the members' lounge, could be the speaker's office. We don't even know. Yeah. 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 
Interesting. I mean, I know it, not, not to beat a dead horse, but I mean, we, we talk about it now and again, right? Uh, how much debate actually takes place in public. Or, when you say that the House debated this bill on Wednesday, did they discuss it? Did they debate it? I actually wrote down the, uh, the dictionary definition of debate here, <laughs> uh, which could be the formal discussion of a motion under parliamentary procedure. Uh, but in common parlance, the primary definition of the word debate is a contention to discuss a question by considering opposed arguments. So we don't always see actual debate, just as a, as a side note. I use the word deliberate or That's deliberations a, a lot when I'm writing about it because it is. If, I think if you write the House debated, it implies more of a active conversation than you then you get to see from the floor that's not to say these conversations aren't going on there could be very lively conversations happening about what to do with congestion pricing or sunsetting they're just not uh publicly accessible sure and uh and so now again we as we did last week when we were talking about this bill uh we're looking to the senate how this house package might fare there um and uh, Chris, I know you caught up with Chairman Rodrigues from the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Um, the Senate's looking for more of a policy-based discussion. Uh, what did he mean there? What, what kind of policy is this? Like policy on how the money is spent, where it's directed, or trying to change, trying to change people's behaviors for how they commute? I think it's a little bit of, of both of those you know, categories that you've outlined here. The one really specific idea that we've heard from the Senate President, Karen Spilka, is using money to lower the cost of public transit fares on either the MBTA or the RTAs. She's come out publicly and said that she thinks that the, the legislature should do that as a way to change behavior, get more people to ride public transit, uh, kind of incentivize taking a train or a bus over driving your car onto a road that already can't accommodate any more cars. But other than that, you know, there's lots of ideas out there floating around, such as um, investing more in an east-to-west or west-to-east rail connection uh, from Worcester to Springfield and perhaps beyond. Uh, ideas out there are congestion pricing, like we talked about earlier. Or um, Exactly. Um, and so the final vote in the House, 113 to 40, uh, 40 opposed. That's a formidable number for the governor, right, who's uh, indicated uh, he opposes a gas tax increase and uh, hinted he might veto uh, this bill as, as it currently stands. Right. Uh, le legislature can override any veto from the governor with a two-thirds vote. 113 of the 157 current members does clear that threshold, perhaps a bit more narrowly than Democratic leaders might want, but they do have a, a comfortable margin of at least half a dozen votes, I think, if I'm doing the math right. Yeah, and Matt, you've been around a while. Um, <laughs> Matt, you're old. What are you saying, Sam? You're an old guy. Um, uh, how often, I mean, so, so the House has a comfortable uh, majority on this bill, right? Um, if the governor vetoed it, how often does the House try to override a veto or just let it be? I mean, how, how's that decision made? Because I would assume that they don't always go to override a veto in, in every single case, right? I mean, I would I would say most of the time they, they do. I, I can't think of many cases where they've really gone out on a limb, taken a vote on something especially as risky as taking a tax vote uh, where they're already on record and they're not going to follow it through and, and see it done. And they do have the votes. That said, I'd be cautious to read 
too much into it. I mean, I, I think you're right, Chris. If everybody's voting, that's a cushion of about six people uh, to override uh, the governor. There's a lot that can happen between now and a bill getting sent back by the governor, including what the Senate might do and what a conference committee bill might look like. Uh, that, you know, it's it's not the usual comfort margin that the speaker has when he racks up to uh, 120, 130 votes for his proposals, which is usually uh, where he's sitting before he brings some of these major bills to the floor. So uh, I think it was interesting. I mean, the speaker is always probably going to be able to get the votes if he wants them uh, to override. And, uh, you know, I think we just need to watch closely to see how the Senate uh, responds to this uh, proposal. Uh, Like uh, Chris noted, uh, there's uh, some interest in the Senate in doing more policy. There's potential to find common ground with Governor Baker. We know he supports higher Uber and Lyft fees, but he doesn't like the gas tax and he doesn't like the corporate excise tax increases. So uh, I think this thing still has a long way to go. And you remember the six, uh, you, you mentioned the six member cushion. And lest we forget, it is an election year and in a purple district. Uh, I'm sure that a Republican opponent to a Democratic candidate for re-election might make an issue out of a gas tax increase. Right. And this, we should really note, this isn't going to be theoretical. Uh, We have two House seats up for special elections on March Mm. 31st, um, kind of right there in the interim before this is going to come up in the Senate, where I would imagine in that race, the the Democratic and Republican candidates are going to have to say if they will vote for or against an override uh, for these tax increases. Good point. Absolutely. I think that even came up in some of the the last election cycle. You know, there was already talk of transportation revenue and talk of raising the gas tax. And when you get into the the local debates and things like that, people in 2018 were being asked about if they'd support a gas tax. There's there's no way it doesn't come up on the campaign trail this year, even if it, you know, will it decide races? That's a different question. But it there's no way it's uh, not talked about. Sure. Been getting a lot of emails about the gas tax from uh, Jay McMahon, for example, from his campaign list, who's the Republican candidate for Senator DiMacito's old seat. Not, not every issue that the, you know, not every House vote or Senate vote lends itself to being a campaign issue. But this is a one that's easy to, to wrap your head around from a voter perspective. It's one that you see the effects from tangibly if you're a driver. Right. Pretty black and white. Yeah. Um, and so the next day, Thursday, to finish off our one-two spiked punch, Matt, um, uh, the House passed a transportation borrowing bill around $18 billion in the bottom line uh, with visions of that extra $600 million, uh, dancing in their minds uh, from the day before, uh, significantly boosted the bill's bottom line through amendments and other floor changes. Um, Matt and Chris, uh, what's in that final bill? Yeah, a lot of sugar plums were added to that bill, if that's what you were getting at, Sam. That is. Uh, Thank you. That transportation bond bill started off at about $14.5 billion. Uh, Chairman Strauss, Will Strauss, the House Chairman of the Transportation Committee, making it crystal clear at the start of that debate that uh, the House believed that the $18 billion long-term borrowing bill that the governor wrote and filed uh, was unsustainable and not fully paid for uh, based on uh, the governor's uh, proposed uh, you know, financing mechanisms. And he said only by the virtue of that tax vote the night before and the $600 million in new revenue could they afford to uh, boost the bottom line. But 
uh, given that it did pass uh, afford they could and they uh, padded it with a lot of earmarks uh, plus a lot of the things that the governor had been hitting them over including mm. uh, I think there's some 350 million or so to repair the approaches to the two Cape Cod Canal bridges uh, that's one big piece that the governor had flagged that was absent from the original house bill and was added back uh, in the amendment process. Yeah, you're right, Matt. The uh, the Baker administration had been had been hitting the house over what they said was underfunding of of a lot of areas, but some of those gaps, so to speak, ended up being plugged uh, by the end of Thursday. Uh, let's uh, shift gears and uh, uh, travel back to Super Tuesday, Super Duper Tuesday. And Secretary Bill Galvin had predicted 1.85 million uh, voters for Tuesday, or just over 40 percent of registered uh, mass voters. Uh, how'd that stack up with uh, what we ended up seeing? You know, turnout was very good, I, I would say, on, on Tuesday. It didn't quite live up to the one half million Democrats that the secretary projected, and I think it was 350,000 Republicans that uh, he thought, or at least uh, votes in the Republican primary that the secretary was estimating. I think both numbers came in a bit under, but uh, you still had uh, north of uh, 1.7 million people uh, voting, I I believe, if uh, you know, I don't have my math in front of me, but uh, so turnout was very, very good. Uh, Democratic Party Chairman Gus Bickford was very pleased with what he saw. He thought it was reflective of energy on the Democratic side this cycle. Uh, I, I think you're probably going to see an even higher turnout in the general election. There wasn't a lot drawing uh, Republicans and in independents to pull Republican ballots this time around, so that could have uh, suppressed some of the vote. But uh, all in all, uh, a decent turnout if you consider whatever it is, some 40 percent uh, good. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and for you mentioned Republican voters. I mean, for uh, diehard Republicans or party animals, I mean, the state committee race was um, was something that they were watching. Yeah, the state committee races were uh, interesting, but they're definitely not a driver of voter turnout. I think, you know, most people show up and see those names on the ballot and either, you know, guess or or maybe leave it blank. But uh, for the diehards, this was a, an interesting race and it was kind of an interesting uh, de facto battle between uh, Charlie Baker and uh, Jim Lyons and the Mass Republican Party, which has shifted a bit uh, towards the right, uh, taken a much more pro-Trump stance uh, than the governor ever has or uh, seemingly will. Uh, and uh, based on some party people that I've spoken to since, uh, the governor did not fare all that well, despite he and, and some of his allies using uh, some resources to spend pretty heavily in some areas of the state to try to win back some of these state committee races. And maybe I should point out here the Republican State Committee is a body of 80 people who uh, make party decisions. They're supposed to be in charge of uh, helping to fundraise and recruit candidates to run for statewide and, and local seats. And uh, the governor was looking to kind of wrest some control back from the conservative wing of the party that he doesn't really align with. Uh, But my understanding and reading of the results is that actually went the other way. And Mm -hmm. uh, Lyons's position atop the party has been uh, even further solidified. Yeah, might have lost more ground than he gained. Um, Now, one of those, give or take, 1.7 million uh, voters on Tuesday was Elizabeth Warren of Linnean Street in Cambridge. And Tuesday morning, she walked out her back door with her husband and her dog to go vote. And a lot of us were there watching, Katie. (laughs) Many, 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 many. 
of us. M- many of us. <laughs> uh, and some, some of us who were lucky got to meet the dog Bailey, too. Um, now, she brushed off the uh, suggestion that morning that Super Tuesday was do or die. And, and you wrote about that on Tuesday morning. Um, yeah. But in doing so, perhaps she didn't expect just how bleak things would look on Tuesday night? Yeah, that was kind of a an interesting scrum that Senator Warren had with reporters on Tuesday morning, right after she cast her ballot. Ballot. She did vote for herself. We know that. Um, she she told us she did, but she she was in kind of a an awkward position as she was taking questions because obviously, I, I don't think anyone expected Elizabeth Warren, except maybe some of her her supporters to be the the all-out winner on Super Tuesday. I don't think anyone, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised that she came in third in Massachusetts. You know, maybe people didn't expect it to go as badly as it did for her that night. But even, you know, she taking reporters' questions in the morning had to sell her campaign, right? Mm. It's, it's the final day of those races, and she, you know, said she wasn't worried about le- losing to Bernie Sanders. She said she was just going to Michigan that evening because it was next on the schedule. Um, you know, she didn't have really any public events. Her campaign surrogates didn't have any public events for her in Massachusetts on Super Tuesday. So I think that some of the writing was on the wall there. And, you know, even as much as she was still sounding an optimistic note, she had kind of switched her messaging over to a more reflective tone even Tuesday morning, talking about how how glad she was to have had this opportunity to be able to elevate issues like universal child care, like canceling student loan debt, and to, you know, go across the country and talk to voters and build a grassroots movement. And it was, you know, a lot of those same things were what we heard from her on Thursday after she withdrew from the race. You're right. Yeah. In retrospect, as we look back at that reflective tone, yeah, she talked about it being a someone asked her, what she had learned, you know, regardless of the outcome, what were her takeaways? She talked about it being a righteous fight. And that was the very strongly the messaging uh, in her in her ultimate kind of withdrawal medium post and email to supporters and campaign call. Sure. Uh, how do we how do we interpret her performance in in the Bay State polls? What carried Biden uh, so far here. His spending was really low in Massachusetts compared to other states. Um, was it moderate stances? Was it people yearning for a return to the Obama era? Uh, what what was motivating this Biden turnout? Or were we all just, uh, were we all just taken off guard? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I think to some degree we were taken a little off guard. The polling had not showed Biden strong, but those polls were also taken at a point in the race where Biden had not yet won South Carolina and won South Carolina decisively. And uh, let's be honest, the Biden campaign didn't spend heavily anywhere. They didn't have much of a field organization anywhere, and certainly not in Massachusetts. What I think they had maybe one field office uh, in Quincy. Despite him having strong ties in this state, he's not an unknown figure in Massachusetts. He, he has close ties to Boston Mayor Walsh, uh, uh, close ties uh, to you know some of the big Democratic fundraisers uh, in this state. So he is not unknown here. And uh, Massachusetts voters have also been known to uh, have an establishment streak in them and to support establishment candidates. But I think what you saw was after South Carolina, people uh, were uh, imbibed with a renewed faith in uh, former Vice President Biden's ability to 
to win this campaign. And uh, you saw very quickly people like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg drop out and endorse Biden. The moderate wing of the party coalesced behind Biden as uh, what it appears to be what they think is the only opportunity to stop the rise of uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, and support someone that they think is the best opportunity to uh, beat Donald Trump. And and you heard Elizabeth Warren say it at the press conference the, on Thursday when she dropped out of the race that she thought there was another lane between the the left side of the party with Sanders and the middle uh, with Biden. She thought she could carve a different path out. Uh, she just happened to be wrong, and it turned out there wasn't uh, a room for her ideologically in this race in a year when it seems like Democrats' top priority is beating the president. I, I wonder, too, if, you know, we saw Matt mentioned Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and their, their support for Biden kind of coalescing the moderate wing. And I wonder if you're a if you're a Democratic voter or an independent voter who's pulling a, a blue ballot in Massachusetts, if and you're not someone who has a strong ideological bent one way or another, if you're not someone who identifies really as a progressive, but maybe you were going to vote for Elizabeth Warren because she's your your home state senator, if that kind of power um, coming behind Biden at the 11th hour, if that, you know, sent a message to you that, oh, this is the guy. Here's the viable candidate on the national stage, that kind yeah. of message. I, yeah. I don't know that, you know, I don't know that he did pull any votes away from Warren, but it's it's possible. Sure. Um, now, quickly here, an, another one of those 1.7 or so million voters uh, was Charles D. Baker of Precinct 4 in Swampscott. Um, who also voted for himself on election day. Yes, he did, yes, for his town committee. Republican town committee of Swampscott. Yeah. So Charles D. Baker of Precinct 4, um, in 2016, Matt, and you quoted this back to him at his polling place on Monument Avenue, um, said that he never wanted to be devoid of a position on something of significance and importance, uh, like something so important as a presidential primary pick. So uh, did he tell you, did he tell you on Tuesday night uh, who he voted for? Well, I hope I'm not breaking the news to people now, but (laughs) no, he did not. Uh, And I did remind him of that comment that he made uh, back in uh, 2016 when he endorsed Chris Christie. What's changed since then? Right. I said, what, you know, what has changed? And he said, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. But obviously something has changed because he did not tell us who he voted for. He continued to say that uh, he does not want to get involved in presidential politics. That's not what the Massachusetts voters pay him to do. And uh, that was it. He uh, did not want to talk about the presidential race at all. His options were really for the presidential because he said he wasn't voting for Trump. So his options were leave it blank or vote for his former boss, uh, former Governor Bill Weld. Well, let's not discount Rocky De La Fuente. But uh, (laughs) I've never heard Baker mention Rocky De La Fuente. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think a lot of people assumed (laughs) that the governor would go in and probably just vote for Bill Weld. Uh, now, it's a little interesting that he wouldn't just say that he went in and voted for Weld, someone that he worked for, who he's called a mentor in the past, but uh, he wasn't willing to go there. I mean, he could have blanked the ballot. Rather uh, than vote against the leader of his party? Yeah, yeah it's entirely possible. I mean, I, th- I think 
you know, reading between the lines here, the governor obviously doesn't want to get in a food fight uh, with the White House and the and the Trump administration. He is attempting uh, to work with them on a number of big issues, including getting permits for a major offshore wind farm uh, in Massachusetts. He's trying to get HHS to scrap uh, what they consider to be a very dangerous new Medicare rule that would potentially uh, Medicaid, excuse me, potentially jeopardize billions of dollars in reimbursements to Massachusetts and Massachusetts hospitals. So uh, if he's trying to work on that policy front, uh, it could be a reason why he doesn't want to get into the 2020 electoral contest. Now, Secretary Bill Galvin, ahead of the primary, um, had suggested that folks bring their own pens to the polls because of the risk of coronavirus, right? That's one of the things that a lot of people would be touching the same pen in the voting booth. Worth noting, the governor did not bring his own pen. He trusted the, the pen at First Church in Swampscott. Um, but uh, Chris, you were over at City Hall today, just speaking of coronavirus. Um, we got the latest update on the facts and figures and risks and preparedness plans. And as we close out another week here with the smell of Clorox and Lysol and Purell wafting in the late winter breeze, um, where do we stand vis-a-vis corona in Massachusetts? Well, we stand in a place where, as the governor reminds us, the risk to the general public remains low. But we now have eight cases uh, of COVID-19, the coronavirus-caused respiratory illness, identified here in Massachusetts. Just one of those has been confirmed by the, the feds. That's the uh, UMass Boston student that we've known about for a good few weeks. The other seven uh, is an increase from the last update we had because it seems like uh, Biogen had a leadership meeting in Boston recently where five employees seem to have contracted the illness. And uh, that's what's really contributing to this apparent small spike in the, the new cases. Mm. And there was a little confusion just, just to sort it out, right, um, for folks who might have been watching that press conference that I'm sure got a lot of eyes. And there was a little bit of confusion over the numbers or statistics of who's positive or who's presumptive or where they're from. And uh, could you maybe sure. just so, sort so that out for us? Eight cases total. One is confirmed by both the testing done here and by uh, the CDC. That's the UMass Boston student. The other seven are still presumed positive, which is where uh, guys. The state lab has identified it as a positive result, but they are still awaiting, um, I guess, double confirmation from the CDC. And there's a, you know, volume dependent turnaround time of a few days on that. Four of those total are in Suffolk County, three of which uh, were apparently contracted the illness at Biogen. Three cases are from Norfolk County, two of which apparently contracted it at Biogen. And the eighth case is a woman in Middlesex County who uh, recently returned from a trip to northern Italy. The third case in Norfolk County, the non-Biogen case, is a uh, woman in her 20s, not a man in his 40s, as was said uh, in error at the press conference today. Gotcha. So ironically, Biogen is sort of the the Petri dish of Massachusetts coronavirus here this week. Just in a pure numbers game, <laughs> yes, the majority of cases stem from that. Yeah. So as, as we sit here, I'm not sure exactly what is going on, but it appears that that Biogen leadership conference, which was held at downtown Boston, on the harbor. Uh, that people are uh, after the press conference that Chris and Colin were at this afternoon, people are exiting in mass the hotel and heading to Brigham and Women's to be tested oh for my. coronavirus. So this is something that uh, has uh, created a bit of a, 
of a stir here in the city. Yeah, sure. And one of those, uh, one of those new Norfolk County cases, not the not the woman in her 20s that was previously identified, is apparently a, a Wellesley resident. Um, the school system there has alerted families that there is a, a parent of two Wellesley children who has tested positive for the COVID-19 illness. Um, but the students are, are healthy and have no symptoms, but they've closed a couple of their closed a couple of their schools today to clean those um plymouth is also has no school today to clean the schools and buses there they're contracting with a special company for that um and one of the things that has come up is is lawmakers are starting to ask are do the the public schools in massachusetts need more money to do this cleaning to do some uh some distance learning preparations if that comes into play so i would say uh stay tuned there yeah. Um, and we've heard some stuff like that. And we've heard Steve Poftak, the general manager of the T, talking about a, um, a disinfecting plan for weekly disinfecting and yeah, they're, um, they're scrubbing every the trains, four hours. Which they should probably be doing anyway. Well, that was Steve Brown's point at the press conference. Why aren't you doing this anyways with flu and cold season the, afoot? The difference there that uh, General Manager Poftak has pointed out is they clean. This is disinfecting. It's a kind of different process and level that that is different from the the regular cleaning different solutions and things like that um well so as we hear about all these kind of components of a plan um there was some talk last week i think the governor used the phrase fully formulated plan um coming along this week um did did we see sort of a, a cohesive fully formulated plan between all these uh we had three different press conferences and and you know major updates this week i mean i, I think they have plans in place they haven't necessarily broken down here's what every aspect of state government is planning but guidance has been going out from dph um you know to schools to hospitals to different different sectors of the of life really in (laughs) massachusetts i was gonna say of the economy but beyond that yeah um but i i think the thing we're, we're running into is all of this is changing so rapidly and more information is becoming available and the dynamics are changing at such a uh quick pace that we don't necessarily, you know, know what to plan for. Sure. Well, to quote Colin A. Young, this week has been a month. We made it through. (laughs) Thanks, folks. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. You are ready to call it having us made it through the week far earlier than I would be. So I hope you didn't (laughs) just jinx it for us. We've got a few hours left. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sam. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.